In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. There are many who consider The Breakfast Club the greatest high school movie of all time. John Hughes directed it as well as 16 Candles and Pretty in Pink, all of which star my guest today, Molly Ringwald. Molly strikes you as someone who had it all figured out early, that she systematically set out to be a teen icon, but her idea of success was far less defined than that. I think the only thing that I, I planned out was when I was seven years old, six or seven years old, I think I announced that I was going to be a famous movie star. I you you announced like that, that to who? To uh, the mirror or to <laughs> No, I think there were people there? involved. I probably announced it to the mirror as well, but uh, no, there was there was a particular time when I announced it out loud to, yeah, I think relatives, cousins or something like that. And my grandmother, my mother's mother said, you can't say that. You know that that was that was um, unseemly or immodest or right. something like that. And the reason why I remember it was because my mother became so enraged and infuriated that she grabbed me and and all the kids and we left my aunt's house in in this. You know, she was infuriated by someone that her mother bursting would say your that. bubble. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. well, because I think that's that's something that was told to her. And she would not— You can't do that. Don't do it to my kids. Discouragement. Don't, yeah. You can't do that. So I think that's the reason that I had this certainty that I was going to be uh, uh, an entertainer. I don't even know if I said movie star, but I think I I definitely said I was going to be a famous entertainer. And, you know, and I I was already sort of like a seasoned pro by then. I mean, by seven years old, I had already been on stage. I, you know, (laughs) performed with my dad's jazz band. It was, you know, it was—I had reason to believe that this was what I was going to do. Now, your dad, is he still alive? Yeah. He's a musician. He is. And was that, uh, was music and culture and the appreciation of things cultural uh, present in your household? Very, yeah. Yeah, but it was not only an appreciation in terms of art as something that is is fun or interesting. It, it was also a job. He as made a, a living as a pianist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he supported a family, you know, until I started working, he supported a family on a musician's salary, which is no small feat. Now, your father's blind. That's right. Was he legally blind from birth? He was legally blind from birth huh. uh, and and then completely, entirely blind by the time I think he was about 10, between 10 and 12. Where did he grow up? He grew up in Northern California in Sacramento. 
And then he went away to the Berkeley School for the Blind when he was, I think, around 12 and learned how to, you know, write Braille and he had a guide dog and all of that. Um, I mean, people very often ask me, you know, what was it like having a blind father? And to me, it's like I never knew anything else. So, and, and to me, he could do anything. I mean, he, he was so, if anything, I felt like my mother was, uh, was handicapped because she's painfully shy. Uh, so my father made all the phone calls. You know, he, he was the, you know, the social calendar. He could talk to anyone. You know, he's, he was an entertainer. And so, you know, he just has always had that facility. And, of course, it wasn't easy, And which is now that he gets older and, you know, he's more comfortable having people do things for him. And I'll say, you know, but, Dad, you could do anything. And he's like, that's ridiculous. Of course I didn't. I couldn't do everything. I just wanted you to think that I could. And he did. I mean, he, he was, he was a, a, I think he was an amazing father and is an amazing father. When, you know, you're at the very least, you're rehearsing in the mirror before you go up and tell everybody <laughs> in your family what your plans are. Um, when does that change? When does that really become real for you? I think, well, and I how? think when I, was, when I was little, I really wanted to be, um, I think singing was the most important thing. I mean, that was the thing that made the most sense. And um, I wanted to be, basically, I wanted to be Bessie Smith because that's kind Why? of. Because that's who I listened to. My dad was a traditional, is a traditional jazz musician. And so that was my early introduction to jazz music was listening to Bessie Smith. <sighs> and there was something about her. I mean, I was pretty shy. I still am pretty shy, um, but when I was little, I was very, very shy. But the only time I didn't feel shy was when I was on stage in front of an audience. Right. Um, and it had to be a big audience. Like if, if somebody wanted me to, you know, perform. <laughs> oh, I can't do that. I'm sorry. How <laughs> many know? seats is it? 350? <laughs> no. Sorry. Yeah, but I mean, if it was like, you know, a couple people in the living room, that was too, that was too close. Oh, I see. If, if, there, were, if there was literally, and, and I'm still a little bit like that. Like, for instance, I did um, a couple weeks at the Carlisle Hotel. Singing. Singing, yeah, um, because I've, I've recently taken up singing again. And, I mean, of course, you know that, that room. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really hard because you're really close to the people. Yes. I mean, there's no it's way intimate. to have any kind of distance. So... You know, how'd that, I, how'd that work for you? <laughs> I think it worked really well. I mean, I got and and they put the people right. I mean, the people were practically looking under my skirt. It was it was really kind of. I don't doubt that. <laughs> no, no, but but who produced this? Um, well, I I decided. Um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna cut ahead from you know from the time that I was little because a, a few things. Oh, we're gonna happened. go back to when you were little. A, a few things happened in between me announcing that I was going to be a, a famous uh, star and and then you know so the music kind of was the first thing that I wanted to do. And then I think by the time I, I did my first movie when I was 13 years old, I think it was with John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins and Susan Sarandon and Raul Julia. And it was just, and <laughs> well, Paul what, 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 what movie was that? It was called The Tempest. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think it was at How that moment. How did that happen? <laughs> How did you get into the movie business? Okay, wait. Um, how did I get into the movie? Well, I, Where were you then? We had moved from Roseville, California to Los Angeles when I, I auditioned for my first professional job when I was 10, um, which was Annie, the first West Coast production of Annie. And I got a part in that. And at the same time, um, my father got some job or something. And so we decided as a family to move from Sacramento to Los Angeles. And then once I was in L.A., you know, I did 
you know, that thing that happens where you get an agent, and then I went from the, the play, and I went into a television series, and then just started auditioning for stuff. And you had the bug. Stuff. You were driven. You had the I bug. I was very driven. Yeah, very driven. But, I mean, I also had a stay-at-home mom who would drive me to stuff. You can't do that without having somebody that's going to, you know, do you take you Do you think you have a debt to your mom? In in a certain way, it was definitely a desire that I had that I wouldn't have been able to do at that age had it not been for them being on board for that. Of course, if you talk to my mother now, she says, well, I, there's no way I would let you do that. If, if I knew everything I know about show business now, there's no way. There's no way. But you went to school while you were doing You went to Lycée Francaise? I, I went to uh, Francais, le, lycée, le Lycée Francais when I was uh, in, in 10th grade, 10th to, to 12th. Did you go to college? I did not go to college. No, when you so so the Tempest. Yeah. How does this estimable group of people, especially back then, mm-hmm. you know, Cassavetes and Jenna and those people, they, they, you know, they're still famous and making a lot of movies. Yeah. How, how did they find you? I had auditioned and and got really close to a job in an Alan Parker movie um, with Albert Finney uh, and Diane Keaton called Shoot the Moon. Shoot the Moon to play their daughter, and um, they had to make up their mind by, I think, you know, 12, 12 noon on a Wednesday, and they got the call. My mom got the call. I was at school, you know, at 11.45 that they had decided to go with another actress, and I was so heartbroken. I mean, I really, 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 really wanted to do it. And then it was pretty much like all the rejects from them, from that, you know, it was, it was being cast. It was Juliet Taylor and April Webster, and they they took all the kids from that. And um, and then I auditioned for The Tempest, and I just I had an immediate connection in California. In California, yeah. And what was uh, it like to be on the set of that movie with all these uh, very highly regarded actors? It was incredible. How do they treat you? Amazing. I mean, they were—John was was phenomenal. I mean, he was he was so generous and so—I um, mean, it was, it was a world that I really didn't know. I had never be, even been out of California until, you know, maybe to like Nevada or something like that. But, you know, I was playing a New York kid. I, I went to New York for the first time. I went to, to Greece. We filmed at Chinichita. You know, Fellini was on the set. I mean, it was like the entire world— Opened up. Big change for you. Yeah, and I thought this is this is what I want to do. This is this is it. And I think the singing at that time, like now, you're supposed to be able to do everything, you know. And in old Hollywood, you were supposed to be able to do everything, you know. You dance and sing. That's why I went wrong. You know, and then and then this little time when I sort of came of age, it was very specialized, and there were there were not that many people that were singing and acting and dancing. It was like you had to pick, or you weren't a serious actor. And I chose acting, and that's really where I put all my focus. And I still sang, but I just didn't think about it as a as a career. After the Tempest, what happened? After the Tempest, I I did a really fantastic movie um, called Space Hunter: Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. <laughs> in three D. I 3D. love that movie. Oh, I love that movie. It's <laughs> so good. I remember showing it to my daughter, you know, when she was like five years old or something, you know, oh, I think it was maybe the first thing that I'd ever showed to her, you know, this is what mommy does. And she watched about 20 minutes and then went, the end. Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) Who's making the decisions for you back then? You know, it was a combination. It was something, you know, that I read, that I liked. I think I had pretty good taste. I mean, So Space Hunter was a good script? 
Um, well, maybe except for space. <laughs> okay. But, you know, at that point, it was either be in high school or be at that time. It was junior high. I, I get it. You wanted to be on a set. Working. I wanted to, to work. The only <laughs> thing that I, I said I did not want to do pretty much was I decided I no longer wanted to go out for commercials. I was – that was not my thing. I You're didn't like it. You're a movie like actress it. now. <laughs> exactly. God damn it. What happens after Space Hunter? <laughs> Um, after Space Hunter, I might be forgetting a couple things. I, I did a, a movie with Richard Benjamin, I think, a television movie. I did like a couple of other little things. And then and then I met John Hughes. Where did you meet John? I met John in Universal City. It was on the, a weekend, I remember. I did not want to take this meeting because it was the weekend and it was just like, uh, not really what I wanted to do. You want to be on a set until you want to go to the beach. Exactly, uh. exactly. Or go to the Galleria. That's what that's what we did. <laughs> and uh, and so, but he was only there for, you know, a couple days and they said, oh, just go go and meet him. And, and, uh, and I did, I think I had read um, Sixteen Candles, which I thought was really funny. And then I, I think the first thing I saw were his sneakers. You know, he always had those, those, big, wild, uh, athletic sneakers. And I think that's the first thing that I saw. And then I, you know, my eyes traveled up and he had that like spiky hair and those glasses. And, sure. And my then, first movie was with John. I know. I loved him. Loved him. That He was writing that or had the idea to write it during Breakfast Club. He wanted to write a series of She's Leaving Home. Um, she's getting married. She's having a baby. And then I think he didn't do the other two, but just did that one. Um, yeah, so we we just kind of had an immediate uh, connection. I didn't find out until later, or he might have actually told me in that meeting, that he wrote Sixteen Candles with my picture above his desk. He had already written The Breakfast Club, which was going to be cast locally in Chicago. And it was over July 4th weekend, and he had just moved from CAA to ICM, and they gave him a stack of headshots. And he sort of flipped through the headshots, found my picture— you know, one of those really cheesy kind of headshots where you're on the like, composites. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you're like yeah. eating pizza. And yeah, on a like bicycle. Playing ukulele that you can't play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so on he, a balance beam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he put that over his computer, and he wrote sixteen candles. You know, like in a day and a half or something. Now, this is a guy who sees something in you, and he changes your life. Mm-hmm. And people to this day just love you in these movies. I mean, they just think you represent young femininity. Mm. Was any of the conversation with John about that? Did you talk about the character in that way, or he didn't bother? It's hard to really know what we talked about. I mean— How did you do what you did? You know, I just I just trusted him. I felt like—and and I've really never felt this since— you know, it was it was you know I felt it a little bit with Paul Mazursky, but it was but it was different because because John was younger. I mean, John actually had less experience than I had at that point. I mean, Sixteen Candles was his directorial debut. He had written Vacation and he had written Mr. Mom, but he had never been in that position of actually like being on the set. Um, so it was really like we were kids in that way together, and he was really like a like a confidant. Which, I mean, to talk about it in retrospect seems, you could say it kind of seems weird, you know? Weird how? Well, I mean, I'm older than than he was when we met. But when I was 36 years old, like, I didn't want to talk to people who were 15. <laughs> like, I didn't— why do, you, why do you think he did? I, I don't know. 
I, I've often asked myself this, and I don't know exactly why, except for we had this, like, sort of mind connection, that, that whole thing of, like, finishing each other's sentences. And he was very close to me, and he was also very close to Michael, Anthony Michael Hall. And we were sort of, like, I think two sides of his personality. I kind of feel like, in a way, that John experienced some kind of PTSD when it came to his teen years. And, and and how I mean PTSD is, you know, from what I understand, you know, the definition or one of the definitions is you experience something traumatic and your brain is not exactly able to distinguish the fact that it's not happening now in the present. And for him, he would talk about things that had happened to him years ago or a slight or something that somebody said to him. And it was, you would think it's so present for him. He's feeling this pain and this anguish and this anger right now. And and so he completely connected with me and with, with Michael and what we were going through. You know, of course, and, and I think it enabled him to write these characters with so much honesty and, and, and it was so raw. He was a very sensitive guy. He was the most sensitive person that I've ever met in my life <laughs> and I, and I and I include myself in that um, and there's a line in in the breakfast club that that I thought was really sort of interesting when and Al, it's a line that Allison has where she says when you get old your heart dies and um, you know and he he died of, of a heart attack too young yeah. way too young but I feel like he carried around so much in in him, so much feeling, and so like I mean, he, this man could hold a grudge like like no one else, you know. Um, so I, you know, so my feelings about him are, you know, like anybody I think who's really incredibly important to you in your life. It's it's complicated. And this is seem this is going to sound kind of glib, but it's like cue the theme song from To Sir with Love. <laughs> now when you. Uh, do 16 Candles refresh my memory? Does everything erupt based on that, or does it erupt somewhat and erupt even more when you do Breakfast Club? Well, when 16 Candles came out, it really was not considered a hit. I think it was sort of, um, in terms of box office, it was kind of disappointing. Uh, but we were already doing Breakfast Club when that happened, and, and then Breakfast Club came out, and that was an instantly a hit. And then I did another one, which he did not direct, Pretty in Pink, but he wrote it for me. Uh, and then that that was actually— Howie directed Pretty in Pink. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I worked with Howie. <laughs> uh, what did you work with him on? He did this movie, uh, My Best Friend's Girl, with Dane Cook. And they wanted me to play Dane Cook's father, and I was this lascivious <laughs> pig of a man— <laughs> <laughs> who was divorced from the mother, and the son had no hope of ever having any success in intimate relationships because I was such a horn dog, <laughs> slut pig. But I love Howie. He's fun to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he actually, uh, I, I have Howie to thank for that movie because John had written it for me. But by the time it was time to make this movie and, you know, he had moved from Universal to Paramount, John was mad at me. And didn't want me to do the movie. They were going to cast Jennifer Beals because she had just had a you know a success with Flashdance. In, in which movie? In Pretty in Pink, the movie that was written for me. They were going to cast Jennifer Beals, and Howie was actually the one that said, "But no, Molly has to be in this. This this is this." But why is was John Molly. mad at you? Because that's what he did. I mean, maybe you didn't work with him enough. No, or I only know worked with him the one well time. Enough to if you 
if you got close to John, then inevitably you were not close to John because he got mad at you. And I, I think when I wanted to do different stuff and— um, it's, know, almost, it's almost like don't work for anyone else. Yeah. I don't mean, work. You know, it's— Till I'm ready. If I had to do it over again, I would have worked with him more. I do know that he was mad. Now, when, when you're doing these films, Breakfast Club, it's this ensemble of young talent. Was everybody on, like, an equal footing? Did he bring people on who were all kind of in the same place in their careers? Or were there some of you that were uh, things were a little shinier than others? I think we were all sort of—I mean, maybe—I think Allie had a lot of— uh, you know, she had done war games, mm-hmm. and she did a movie with Sean Penn, and you know, written a book, and she was you know, yeah. she was <laughs> she was Lillian <laughs> Hellman. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think she had you know, and then and then uh, Emilio was in The Outsiders, and he had that, and he was of course the son of Martin Sheen, and you know, I think I think we all kind of, except for Judd. Judd was the only one that I think really didn't have any um, real experience. And in fact, he he got fired after uh, like I think one week of shooting. John was ready to fire him, and then rehired him. And then rehired him. Yeah. Because I was going to say the person who comes across the hungriest on camera is Nelson. Interesting. Nelson almost seems like he's a guy that they plucked off the street and <laughs> threw in there and said, well, "How would you like to be in a movie?" And he just has this raw animal, so. He was uh, wild-eyed. He was wild. I mean, he was real, and he was really doing that whole method acting thing where he was, I think, you know, moonlighting in a school, which I mean, I'm sure would not go over today if this, you know, basically a somebody in their 20s just shows up at school like, hey, I'm just going to hang out. You know, he he would tell the kids that his parents had abandoned him or whatever. You know, he was he would like sleep in his clothes. You know, I mean, he yeah. just was completely into this character, and also. That character was supposed to be different than the rest of us. I mean, we all bitch about our parents, but he's really the one who's actually being abused for real. He has like a cigar burnt into his forearm, you know. So there was and, and, something and different about him. <laughs> when that when that movie comes out, because I want to get beyond this period. Uh, when that movie Thank comes you, out, Thank you, Alec. Thank you. I do too. <laughs> when that movie comes out, no, but but I think what's interesting is it's, it's funny how one day. You know, you are a movie star whose work as a young leading lady in these coming-of-age films were very popular films. Do you yeah. kind of like, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, great. You don't yeah. really want to, well, I mean, you're I, sick of it. I, sometimes, sure. But, I mean, I also have to accept the fact, I mean, I guess I don't have to accept it, but I do accept the fact that these films really no longer belong to me. They belong to everyone else. And they're very meaningful, and I and I have to sort of respect that. Um, you know, I mean, I'm wrapped up in people's memories, and I'm part of their their slumber parties, and I'm part of their first kiss. And and I and I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear, "You got me through high school. You got me through this very difficult time in my life." You know, and and that's kind of moving. people never say that to me. <laughs> they never say that to me. They never say, "Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross got me through high school." <laughs> got me through my twenties. You know. um, I I can respect that. At the same time, it's not what is most interesting to me in my life. You know, it's definitely one of the highlights. But I'm more interested in in sort of what I'm doing in the moment. Molly Ringwald is singing jazz at the moment or rather next month, at Birdland in New York City. 
Take a listen to the Here's the Thing archives, where director Chris Columbus talks about the stroke of luck that led to his first movie. Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, was leaving his office on a Friday and passed his secretary's desk, and it was sitting there. That's why so much of this business is luck. Yeah. He passed the script and saw the title and said, oh, that looks interesting. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash Bits. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is author, singer, and actress Molly Ringwald. Molly Ringwald actually has something in common with another one of my guests, Mickey Rourke. They both took a long time off from filmmaking. After the massive success of films like The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink, Molly knew she had an opportunity to reinvent herself, but she was unsure how to begin. I guess I was just really young. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I don't think it was probably the right time for me to do that. I mean, I look at people now like Lena Denham and, and you know, and John was always telling me, you have to write, you have to direct, this is what you have to do. But it was like I just wasn't ready and I had to, I had to live a little bit before I was ready to sort of, I just, I, I don't feel like I was a prodigy in that way. Um, and and I needed to live life kind of away from everything and sort of learn how to be a, a human being and sort of be more well-rounded, and that's sort of what I ended up doing. So you, you, when you make these films uh, and you're very young and you're surrounded by people, but you're savvy, well, who are the people you work with that you ended up admiring? Actors, directors? Who, let's stick with actors for the time being. Who was somebody who you worked with and you thought, wow, they were really, they were good? John. I think John Cassavetes. Um, I think— uh, What about your peers? Raul Julia. In terms of my peers, um, 
I'm trying to think who did I who did I really I really loved Sean Penn. I really wanted to work with him as an actor, but he was older than me. He was, you know, I think he's like a good 10 10 years older than me. There was really nobody at the time that was that was my age that that I could get paired up with. Yeah. And and it was like another moment in time You'd where, already been paired up with all of them. <laughs> <laughs> those movies. It was also a time where they weren't casting really young people with older people like right. they are now. Like your leading man was not 30 years older. It just wasn't done like right then in this like little tiny moment of time. And so we came across that that thing all the time where like nobody knew who to set me up with on film. You weren't cast opposite Sean Connery. No. Oh. No. Oh. I- I was not. I mean, I never really had uh, any male co-stars that were sort of, that that could sort of match where I was. A little bit, and and that's what I did. But, like, Robert Downey at the time wasn't known. I mean, he was was really sort of unknown. He had small parts, I think, in John's movies, but, you know, he was— That was was a big part for him, though. That was a huge part for him. (laughs) Toback. Our mutual friend Toback, <laughs> who was a guest on this show, by the way. Toback. I love Toback. He's, yeah. I, he was great with me. I think I was probably the only woman that that he never made a play for, uh-huh. like in the history nothing, nothing of the universe, of. you know. And yeah. that was just because, you know, Warren was producing it. And so I sort of, it was like having like the mafia right. there. Like he knew, you know, don't don't go near here. Um yeah, so it was just kind of like a weird time where I think people didn't really know what to do with me. And I was not, I mean, I was savvy, but I was not savvy enough to really know exactly what to do with myself other than uh, to get out, to sort of distance myself. I had a famous actress once in the late 80s, and she was shooting a film, and she came to the set to meet me to talk about doing a reading of a script with her. And this actress, this famous actress who was a child star, said to me, uh, she was going to take off a year or something. And I said, don't you like to work? I said, how do you take off all that time? I mean, you must have endless opportunities to make films. You're very talented and very sought after. And she said, I hate working hmm. because she'd worked so much when she was young. Yeah. And she, it really affected her. Did you feel the same way? Um, I don't know that I ever hated working. Um, Did you grow to feel like you've done enough of that? It was that I was so not turned on by the material, and I didn't know how to write myself then. I, I was writing, um, and I've always written, you know, along with with singing and acting, but it was—I wasn't good enough, and, and I wasn't confident enough in what I was writing to put it out there. So what did you do? What did I do? Well, I mean, in those years after those films with John, what was your kind of compass? You said to yourself, I want to do what? I moved to Paris. Talk about that. <laughs> How long were you there? I was there, I mean, uh, full time for about five years and then and then pretty much on and off for about 10 years. Um, I moved from Paris to New York and then I kept a residence in both places. But I just, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do other than I wanted to be somewhere where I could just be myself. So I, I went to Paris. I got rid of the red hair. I, you know, dyed my hair dark. I learned French. I mean, I went to French class. I mean, before I went to Paris, I did what I was supposed to do. You I, were single. You weren't married then. No, I was not married. Right. Um, I I was still in Los Angeles, but I, I, um, I, I 
applied to a college, you know, because I felt like that's what I was supposed to do. And I got accepted to USC um, with the agreement that I would take special math courses <laughs> because I'm so bad with math. Uh, and then I went to Paris to do a job, one of those, you know, stupid jobs that, you know, where it's a terrible script, but, you know, hey, you're going to be in Paris in May and why not, you know. And then I went there and I just thought this, it was like suddenly breathing oxygen after you've been just suffocating. Um, and it was it was the most incredible feeling. And I thought, I just have to chase this. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. If I ever do this in my How life— How old were you then? Now's the time. I was about 23, 24. And what did you do with yourself over there? I just lived. Right. I just, like, drank a lot of wine <laughs> and ate a lot of cheese and walked around yeah. and— and learn French and, and— And become a part of something. Yeah. I mean, I just—you know, it, it, eventually I knew that my life was not going to end up there. I knew that I was not going to become, you know, the next Jane Birkin. I wasn't going to, you know, that's not where I was going to end up. But it was—it was, it gave me some distance to sort of recharge and to figure out, you know, what— what I was going to do with my life and who I was going to be. And then I kind of had to sort of decide again whether or not I wanted to act as an adult, you know, because when I did it as a young person, it was so completely, it was just all instinct, you know, and I, and I, you know, can you really say that you make a decision when you're a minor, you know? Yeah, I loved it, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was entirely my decision. So I kind of had to make that decision again as an adult and say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing this, but I'm going to do other stuff too. And when did you step up to bat again, so to speak, with acting was? Actually, you're a little bit instrumental in this. Oh, God. (laughs) No, it's it's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. I, you know, when you do something for so long and it comes easy to you, it's easy to kind of lose respect for what you do. And you sort of realize that not everyone can do it. And I remember I was asked to do a to read a story for the New Yorker Festival, and you were reading a story too. And I was really pregnant at the time. I remember, and I wasn't crazy about the story that I was reading, but you did the most incredible reading I've ever heard. Oh God! It was it was phenomenal. I mean, you had to do an Irish accent, you had to do an African accent. Do you remember this? No. Really? It was it was an, it was an Irish writer. Um, it was wow. I have to go look back. You have to because yeah. I thought, how is he doing? Like, how much did he work on this? And it really oh kind of God. made me remember, in a way, what what was possible in terms of acting and how and how that it really is a skill. And I had to sort of look at that and and say, like, well, how is he? Do, like, does he just like work on accents when he's sitting by himself? Right. right. And it was sort of like a, a series. I mean, that that wasn't the only moment, but that was like a moment like that sort right. of. I had these moments and, and doing theater again right. in you, New York. You look at that, someone and you're like, that's what that is. Yeah. And I want to see somebody like Cherry Jones. Yeah. Every time I see Cherry, she's a very vivid example of someone who reminds me of why we do this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also uh, uh, Jeffrey Tambor and what he's doing right now in Transparent. You know, I've always known him, I think, as most people, as, as a comedic actor. And, I, you know, I worked with him, um, and he was, you know, playing one of the buffoons that, you know, of many that he played. And to see him play this part and not do the obvious thing, it's moments like those that remind me of why I'm doing what I'm doing and how, and how challenging it can still be. But in order to do work like that, you have to have great material. 
And unfortunately, there is just a dearth of great material for everyone, but particularly yeah. for, for actresses, it's, it's even worse. So, you know, so I can't only do that. I think if I'm only an actor, I'll go out of my mind, and it's, it's why I write books, and it's why I sing. And, you do you know, like writing books? I do. It's, uh, it's the hardest thing that I do, for sure. It doesn't come easily. Like, I didn't come out of the womb writing books. So it's something that I always have to work at. And I, I, don't, I don't think that I've ever had that confidence in writing, but it, it's something that I have, that I'm more proud of when I've written the hell out of something and I, and I understand something about a character and why somebody does what they do which is, I think is the same thing that I'm interested in in, in acting. It's, it's the characters and how you can take somebody who's so flawed and see them from all angles. And, and that's just an, an obsession that I have. And when I do that and I do it well, it, there's no greater feeling. I feel like I'm flying. I love doing plays, and I don't get to do them as often as I'd like, especially now that I have little kids. Do you, do you like performing in the theater? I do, yeah. But do you minimize that because of your own family situation? Um, no, it's actually one of the reasons why I moved back to New York was because I I I really miss doing theater, and my kids all love theater. Um, How old are your children now? I have a twelve year old, and I have two six year olds, uh, a girl and a boy, Adele and Roman. You have three children. I have three children. And you live outside the city. Uh, you're not in the city. No, not right now. And you thought that was what you needed to do with your kids. Yeah. You wanted to get out of the city. Yeah. Well, I wanted to have proximity to the city. Yeah. You know, um, but— It's nearby. But, you know, when we were in Los Angeles, we kept sort of trying out neighborhoods, and I just kept getting further and further out. You know, we moved back, and I said, well, you know, when I was in Los Angeles, I was always on the east side, so if I have to go back, I'm going to be on the west side, and my kids are going to grow up in the surf. So we started out in Venice, and then we moved to Santa Monica, and then to Rustic Canyon, and then we, you know, ended up in Topanga until finally I just said, you know, in fact, I don't want to be here. <laughs> I really don't want to be here. And you don't here. want to go back? No, I mean, I, I want to go back to visit. My my parents are, are in Northern California. I just, I don't like Hollywood. I just, um, you know, and I don't care if you're in Topanga, if you're in the vicinity of Los Angeles. It's just, it just doesn't feel real to me. And it and never really did. And maybe it's because I wasn't born in, in Los Angeles. I was born in Northern California. But I, and I feel like there's a real distinction between Northern and Southern California, but it just, it always felt like artifice to me. It, it never felt real. And so when when I had everyone's eyes on me, it felt uncomfortable. When I had, when I felt like no one's eyes were on me, that feels uncomfortable. It just, the whole, the whole thing just didn't feel good to me. And, and I finally, and I, and I was really the one that wanted to move back to New York because my husband was raised on the East Coast. And, you know, for him, California was Do you great. mind my asking what business is he in? He's a book editor and writer. Fantastic. And, uh, and then he took a little hiatus and, and got his MBA at Stanford. You're a genius. <laughs> you just you landed know, on your he's feet. A, he's a yeah, genius. Yeah, exactly. Marrying a genius. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but he liked, he liked it out there, you know, and he made some good friends and it was very sunny. But I just said, if, if, I, if, if we move back, we have to do it now because Matilda is leaving middle school and I don't want her to go to a middle school and then pull her out of it. So if we do it, we have to do it now. It's all about our kids. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and, and I would have. I would have just sucked it up and, and just stayed there if, if it didn't happen. But I said, I, I really, I will wither and die. <laughs> Not that I'm dramatic or anything, but I will wither and die if I have to stay here. Please, please, let's go back. And so, um, and so yeah, so we're how, back. How driven and how creative and how uh, uh, um, 
stage worthy is Matilda. <laughs> and how are you going to handle that differently than yours was handled? She, I, I have a rule. I don't know if you made the same rule for your kids, but my, my kids are not allowed to be professional as kids. And that's just based on my own personal experience. I don't think that they, they just, if they have talent, that talent will not go away. And if they go through college and get to, or, or at least to that college age and say, you know what, this is really what I want to do, I'll do whatever I can to help them and support them. But they know that they can't do that before then. But I said, you can do theater, you can take classes, you know, you can, um, you know, you can do whatever you want as long as it's not professional. And it's been a battle. I think, I think Matilda's somewhat resigned now. Um, but, you know, it's been, I mean, for a while it was a daily battle. You know, well, why, why can't I? Why could you, why was it okay for you and not for me? Um, and I just, you know, we just, it's both of us. It's not just me. My husband and I have made that decision. And I just want to see what they do. I mean, they're extraordinary, you know. And, and personally, I think if I was going to, if I was a betting person, I would bet that she is, uh, is going to be a director. And I just hope that she'll put me in her movie. <laughs> she, I mean, she's a, she's, she's really incredible uh, director and she makes her own movies and you know and I think if she was all concentrated on going and you know going to auditions and getting rejected and doing all of that stuff I don't know that she would be doing what she's doing right now and and figuring that stuff out out of the public eye and I just think that it's the right thing to do I think she's very lucky to have you as a mother with your perspective because as I tell people I go to acting classes sometimes and teach and I'll say to them but also remember that if you want to be happy this is not a great business mm -hmm. it's not a great business the thing about you that strikes me is there are people who become stars and it's only visual you know you're very striking looking and 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 it's only visual and then they go away but you as an actress then had something very unique you had something very special you had this tremendous emotional reservoir. You were very emotive in the films. And you had a bravery. Mm. You know, your character faced things. When people remember those films and they see you now, they see somebody who was uh, very brave. Mm. And, I mean, there's a kind of a bravery to you in those films that I really, really loved. I, I love that. And and it's, it's something that I hear from people. And also, um, I think the fact that I have survived and, and flourished— that that I'm still here. That that I more or less look the same. That I you that do. I have a family. You look fantastic. That I'm that I'm okay. <laughs> I think is incredibly reassuring. I, as for I'm people. sitting here with you, you're one of the few people in the world. Raise your plastic water bottle with me. Uh -huh. You're one of the first few people in the world I can be in a room with and say to John Hughes. To John Hughes. If Molly Ringwald got you through high school, you may want to read her books, Getting the Pretty Back, and When It Happens to You. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The been thinking about McDonald's all day can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh. Got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. 
There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. In the last century, we've gone from fighting in trenches to attacking networks. From iron lungs to artificial. Pocket watches to pocket computers. The Model T to the Mars rover. We are on the brink of interplanetary space travel, and if we can colonize another planet, then the future of the human race is almost guaranteed. The problem is we don't really understand how our brains work. We don't even know for sure why we need to sleep, or how memories are formed. The final frontier of exploration is not the ocean of the stars. It's our minds. Prodigy is all grown up, and in season two, we're going to explore a bunch of new topics, like how to hack humans and teach teachers. Chronic pain, chiropractors, cults, and cybersecurity. The psychopathology of narcissism, and how to control your dreams. My name is Lowell Berlanti, and I'm really interested in why we do the things we do. Listen to Prodigy every Wednesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.